Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the August 2016 episode of Consult. It's episode number 13, but it's certainly not an unlucky episode. In fact, I think it's one of our best interviews so far. We have our first design consultant on the show, the multi-talented Joe Chaplinski, well-known in the Apple Dev community for co-hosting the Release Notes podcast with Charles Perry, as well as putting on those Release Notes conferences with Charles Perry. It's a really great interview. Uh, this podcast has just exploded in popularity over the last month, and a lot of thanks has to go to Josh Adams, who included it as one of the good iOS podcasts out there on his GitHub resource page that's been very popular, and I've linked to it in the show notes. So a special shout out to Josh Adams. Thanks so much for including Consult in that. Very interesting, this month we've had a lot of listeners come in through Pocket Cast. Usually Overcast is the podcast client of choice, but congrats to the folks over at Shifty Jelly because clearly Pocket Cast 6, their new version that just came out, has really resonated with users. So awesome for the people over at Shifty Jelly on a great release. Uh, I want to remind everybody, leave us reviews on iTunes. It really does help with the popularity of the show. And recommend us on your podcast client of choice, whether that's Pocket Cast, whether that's Overcast, or Downcast, or any other podcast client. Give us that little star. It really helps with the show's popularity. So without further ado, let's get to my interview with Joe. So my guest today is Joe Chaplinski, creative director of Bombing Brain Interactive, independent design consultant, host of the Release Notes podcast, creator, co-creator, I should say, of the Release Notes conference, and also a bassist in airplane mode. Is there anything I missed, Joe? Uh, I also uh, do some consulting via another uh, company called Breakpoint Studio. But yeah, I mean, it's I do a lot. <laughs> you do a lot, and you're really well known in the community, um, especially for release notes. How long have you been doing release notes for? You know, that's a great question. I think it's been we just hit our three year anniversary recently. Uh, you know, it's 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 a lot. We're like at 180 episodes in or whatever that is. So we've been doing it every week, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I never in a million years would have thought we'd be doing it this long. Wow, congratulations. That's quite a milestone. So let's go back. Let's go way back. Take us back to your early career and how you eventually got into design and how you got into the Apple community. How did it all happen for you? Sure. Uh, I you know, studied in, in uh, high school and in college. I studied to become a, an English teacher, actually. Uh, and so for my first five years of, of my career, I actually taught high school English. Uh, first in the Philadelphia area where I grew up. And then after that, I moved out to California uh, and I taught for one semester or one year there, one school year there. Uh, and after five years of teaching, you know, it's a pretty common statistic about five years in. Most new teachers are kind of burnt out and kind of, uh, you know, leave the profession. And I hate being a statistic, but I also uh, told myself, I promised myself that if I looked in the mirror too many days in a row where it was, you know, I wasn't feeling it anymore, uh, that I, I needed to change my career. It's one of those jobs that, like, you can hurt people, you know, when, you, when you're not into it. So... Uh, before I got jaded, I decided to uh, to take off. And I had always been interested in computers and uh, particularly in graphics, uh, you know, from a very early age. You know, this is in the early 80s. I got my first Mac in 1986, I think. Uh, my, I had an SE and, uh, you know, I had early versions of uh, Mac Paint and things like that. And I was always playing around with that. Uh, I learned HTML early on when the web came around. So I was really into computers quite a bit. And it was all self-taught. 
and so when I quit teaching, I didn't know what I wanted to do next, but I thought it would be kind of cool to do something uh, computer graphics kind of related. And uh, so I just started searching for jobs. I had the summer because I, had, I told them I was resigning in April, but I, hadn't, I was going to get paid through August. Uh, and, uh, you know, I gave myself a few months there to, to figure it out, to go find myself a, a, an entry-level position doing design. And I did. Uh, and I, you know, basically really early grunt work, uh, working on uh, PowerPoint presentations and cleaning up formatting and things like that. Uh, and, you know, eventually just worked more and more until I got more you know, developed in my skills uh, and, uh, you know, really honed my skills in Photoshop and in other, other types of design programs. And eventually, uh, you know, this, this whole app thing happened. I was interested in mobile uh, very, pretty early on. I had, you know, I had the early like Palm Pilots and handspring visors and whatnot. Uh, and the very first couple early smartphone type things were really interesting to me. But uh, when the iPhone came along in 2007, uh, that's when my ears really perked up. And, uh, you know, like everyone else, I really wanted to get on that platform and start making things right away. And it turned out that two friends of mine were thinking the same thing around 2008. They, uh, when the SDK came, uh, SDK came out, they started uh, making apps uh, under the name Bombing Brain Interactive. These were two friends of mine I had gone to high school with. I hadn't really talked to that much because they were still back on the East Coast uh, and I had moved to California. But, uh, you know, they got in touch one day and they said, hey, I heard you're doing graphic work now and uh, we really need somebody to help us with some artwork and design. Uh, you know, would you love, would you like to come in and, and partner with us? And, uh, you know, it started off early, you know, really small, just doing uh, icons and whatnot for them and, and layouts. Uh, and then eventually I started really becoming more a member of the team as we went along. We realized that the three of us got along really well. Uh, and, and, you know, the rest is pretty much from there. I mean, I've just been doing graphics and other kinds of design ever since. I mean, actually, the more I get into it, the more I'm interested in uh, user interface and uh, user experience kind of design. Uh, but I still do a lot of graphic work as well. But, uh, you know, when, when you're a small company, you tend to do a lot of different types of design. You're, you know, you really can't afford to have six different designers on your team. Um, but, you know, I've been doing that ever since and, and, you know, just working my way from there. Take us more on the journey of Bombing Brain Interactive. Mm -hmm. What was it like developing the first product? When did you really make it as a small company? And how has your design ethos changed over time, if at all, as the iPhone has evolved? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, they, they, it has, my ethos has definitely changed quite a bit. Uh, when, we, when we started, uh, the guys started with an app uh, that they were very passionate about. Uh, they're, they are roller coaster enthusiasts. Uh, and so the first app they created, this is before I joined with them, uh, was called Coaster Counter. And it was, it was all about tracking your roller coaster rides. So whenever you would go to a theme park, you would, uh, it would have a database of all the different roller coasters at whatever theme park you went to all over the world. Uh, and it would have all kinds of stats on those roller coasters, you know, how tall they were and how fast they were. And it was a really, really cool, interesting app idea. And it's probably this, the dumbest thing you could possibly build as your first iOS app <laughs> um, because it was really complicated. Uh, and they worked really hard on it. And uh, so they asked me, uh, this, they had put that out in the store and it was out there. Uh, and they asked me to come in and do some uh, design work for it. You know, they needed some icons and things like that. So I started helping them that way. Uh, and I started a redesign, and unfortunately, we never ended up building uh, for the app uh, years down the road. That app was really not very successful. Uh, it was a great idea. It was really interesting. We just had no real way of marketing it. And I don't think people at that time were even thinking to use their phones that way. Uh, but it was a really cool learning experience, and uh, it was a pretty complicated app. I think what happened for us, uh, you know, we, we kept working at it. We kept doing other things. Uh, and what really clicked for us, the first product that we had that was really successful, uh, was it actually came at the same time as the iPad. Uh, when Steve Jobs announced the iPad in April 2010, I think it was, uh, he 
basically, you know, he put up that slide where it was saying, you know, this, this product doesn't need to exist unless it can do some things better than a laptop and some things better than your phone. You know, it has mm-hmm. to have a purpose. And we took that to heart. Like that's very same day, as soon as we, we all watched that announcement, uh, I was still in California. They were, uh, you know, back at home in the, in, their, in the Philadelphia area where they still live. And, uh, you know, we got on the phone immediately afterward and said, okay, what can we do for this thing? You know, now that we know that we can build apps for it and we know it's iOS, uh, you, know, w- w- you know, what are the ideas? What are we going to do? And we started brainstorming. And one of the first things we came up with uh, was the idea of a teleprompter. Uh, that, you know, this screen is large enough where you can read text pretty far, you know, from a pretty far distance. And to me, it was the perfect kind of app for uh, this, this new device. For one thing, uh, you know, a laptop is kind of hard to stick under glass, right? There were like kind of glass uh, reflector type things that you could use uh, for teleprompters. But, you know, it was, they weren't ideal for laptops. Uh, and then, you know, on a phone, obviously, the screen's too small. You can't really see text quite as well. And so this iPad sort of fit right in the middle of that area. And, you know, it's a cheap enough device, 500 bucks, you can get one, throw it in your studio. We figured that a lot of video kind of houses, people that make commercials, people that have to you know, audition lots of live talent would, uh, would want to use this. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we went ahead and, and started building it. I thought, oh, well, how hard can scrolling text be, right? Uh, <laughs> but right, right, uh, right. T- t- turns out that in the early versions of iOS, it was extremely hard. It's still pretty hard to do. Um, but, you know, it was an ambitious thing, but we, we hustled and the guys put it together. Uh, I did a quick design for it and we got it out in the store on day one, uh, you know, the first iPad launch. And that was a big deal. It was really cool for me to go buy my iPad and actually put my own app on it. Uh, and from day one, you know, we did pretty well. We were one of the first 500 apps on the iPad. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And certainly the first teleprompter. And, you know, we got a lot of competition after that, but we kind of established ourselves and we really listened to our customers uh, and we kept adding and adding and adding features. You know, sometimes I think we may have added some features that maybe were a little beyond us, uh, you know, that would never have quite been uh, as smooth and perfect as we'd like them to be. And we get lots of criticism for it. Uh, but, you know, we wanted to be the professionals tool. We really wanted to make it the ultimate uh, teleprompter. And, and we did. And, you know, we've uh, had a pretty good feature set for a long time. And it's always been successful for us. By far our most successful product. We've had some other things since that make some money. But uh, that one is definitely our big hit. So you've been an integral part of Bombing Brain Interactive for the better part of a decade. How have you balanced your time working with Bombing Brain Interactive with your consulting career? That's, wow. You, I never, no one ever put it to me that it's 10 years, but you're right. It is almost 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always been an understanding. Uh, you know, you know, the, the app, Teleprompt Plus in particular, makes a lot of money, right? But when you're splitting it three ways amongst three people and two of those guys have kids, uh, I lived in California for the longest time in San Francisco. Now I live in New York. Uh, you know, I have a pretty high cost of living uh, because I'm nuts. And so, you know, between the three of us, there's no way that one app was going to support all three of us. And so we've always had uh, a need to go beyond what's, uh, you know, what income comes in from our own apps. Uh, and so the guys do consulting work. Sometimes I help them out, but a lot of their projects and their consulting jobs are, are basically code only. They're not really things that I get involved in very mm-hmm. often. Uh, and, you know, they learned to live on reduced <laughs> incomes quite, quite well. They've done a, a pretty good job of kind of backing off and, and just, and, and just be, you know, enjoying the freedom of independence. Uh, I, on the other hand, have always kind of done side projects. And that's always sort of been the understanding is that I can do uh, whatever I need to do to, to pay my bills, basically. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't have children. Uh, I, I basically, I'm not 
I don't consider myself a, work, a workaholic, but I am more than happy to work 80 to 90 hours in a week if I have to. Hmm. Um, it's just I don't consider it work. It's just what I do. I create things. So I'm always happy to be making things and uh, spending the extra hours is sort of what I consider to be fun. So it's, it's not a big deal to me. Uh, and so I've always kind of balanced and, and moved things around and, and got things done, uh, you know, pretty efficiently. As a consultant, what are the most common type of projects that clients come to you with? Uh, you know, in the early years, especially, it was it was mostly uh, small indies. I would meet people at conferences, and uh, they would need an icon, or they would need some design work. You know, just some uh, consulting on like, hey, how does this layout look? You know, what have, you know, what could we do with this? Uh, and sometimes it would be you know pretty heavily involved all the way through the app. Other times it would be very small, a couple icons here and there, and move on. And so it was mostly graphic old design work, sort of in the beginning. Uh, the more I got into it, and the more uh, you know complicated and bigger my skill set got, uh, the more I started working on uh, more of UX uh, user experience design and things like that. And I've even gotten into coding quite a bit myself. Um, you know, not that I'm any kind of expert or anything else, but, uh, you know, I'm able to go in and, and work a storyboard, for instance, and uh, write whatever code I need to to get the, the apps layout and visual kind of parts together. Uh, so, at, you know, as I increase my skill set, it gives me the opportunity to work on more projects and, and more, in, uh, you know, complicated and bigger projects as we go along. Being familiar with the code is actually a very important uh, skill for a designer, right? Because sometimes I've worked with designers who have no familiarity with what's possible or what can be accomplished easily, at least. And that can be a big impediment. Is that true? Yeah, there's a big debate going on whether or not designers should learn to code or in, and whatnot. And mm -hmm. I, underst I understand both sides of the argument. I really do. Uh, you know, if you want to be really, really good at design, you probably shouldn't be spending your time learning Swift, per se. But right. on the other hand, I do. I agree with you that when you know what it takes to be able to create something uh, graphically, you know, to, to accomplish an animation, for instance, that you'd really like to see in the app, when you know what's at stake, uh, you're much better equipped to communicate with the, the developer and say, look, I know this is going to be difficult, but here's why we ought to be doing it. Or, um, you know, so you won't make the mistakes that a lot of designers make, which is they'll do things that are ever so slightly off from the standard. And that one little change is going to make, you know, it's going to require like an extra week's worth of work. And it's only like a five pixel difference anyway. So just let it go and use the standard. Um you know, so I, I do think being familiar with what the other people do, I, I, you know, I'd say the same thing to developers. They should learn a little bit about Photoshop. They should learn a little bit about uh, design tools. Not, you know, to a heavy degree, but at least to be able to communicate and speak the language uh, of the people you work with. I think that's really important. A new client comes to you for a new design consulting project, and this is a Greenfield app, an app, I'm giving you a hypothetical here, an mm -hmm. app that um, has not yet had any code written. How involved should the designer be with decisions uh, made at that point? Ideally, the, the designer, like for me, it should be a, an ongoing partnership before any code is written, and the designer should be involved in early, early discussions. Even in large companies, I don't see this happening enough. You know, the designers will be brought in after the, the, all the architecture for the apps already kind of been decided, and it's kind of a silly, weird way to work for me. I really think designers and, and uh, developers ought to be communicating almost daily, if, if, if not more often, on larger projects. Uh, and, you know, so ideally if there's budget for it now, if someone's just hiring me and they only have a need for one or two things and they only have a budget for one or two things, you know, you, you do what you can. Not every situation is ideal, but, uh, if, if you have the ability to do it, I would say, get your designer in there as soon as possible because you're going to find all kinds of insights, just bouncing your ideas off of someone who's got a different viewpoint 
from your own is going to really, really help the project along. You're probably going to spend less time in code uh, and, and fewer headaches down the line if, if you've had those ideas bounced off by a professional, especially in UX uh, or you know, uh, any kind of experience uh, kind of an expert. When you com- come on as a consultant, what are some of the most important questions that you ask the client about their new project? And how do you get a feeling for the direction that they want to go with in terms of design? Yeah, I always like to start with a conversation. Uh, you know, I'll ask a lot of probing questions. Uh, I, I like to do it over the phone if possible. I hate the telephone, generally speaking, but I need to get a feel for the personality of the person I'm working with. Uh, you know, sometimes it works over email if, if that's necessary. But, uh, you know, to me, it's it's more of a, you know, explain to me why you're passionate about this and what it is that you think your audience is going to get from this. Because a lot of developers or, you know, small business owners are building something for a reason. They're building it because they're, they're scratching their own itch or, uh, you know, and I like to know early on, you know, how much thought has really gone into this about other people and, you know, how much research have you done about the market? Uh, how much do you know, you know, about app, the app store and how it works and monetization and everything else? Ideally, I want to know everything I can know about the app before I start working on it. Uh, and I find when you've had those conversations, you know who you're dealing with. Uh, you, you also pick up a little bit of personality traits and communication style. And to me, that's 90% of the battle. If, if you're not communicating effectively with somebody because you don't know them, uh, you're afraid to say this or that, or they're going to, you know, it's, it just breaks down really fast and things don't get done as effectively as they could. A lot of people listening to the show are contract iOS developers who maybe don't have a great deal of design experience. What are the most common mistakes that you see in iOS apps from third-party developers? Uh, one of the biggest ones is overuse of animation. To me, that's like my big pet peeve. If you're going to have an animation, have it, it has to have a purpose. Uh, and that purpose can't be to have me go, wow, because I'm going to go wow the first time, you know, maybe the second time. And then by the 80th time, you're just slowing me down. Uh, you know, so if, if there's an animation, it better serve a purpose. Like, and I'm, again, I'm not anti-animation, but I look at something like the, the opening animations for the, for the Uber app, for instance. You know, this is big players, too. This isn't just indie apps uh, you know, making these mistakes. Uh, but you know, I understand that that app can't launch in a second, that it's going to take a while for it to do all the things on the back end it has to do. Uh, but I'd much rather it showed me something about what I'm about to see or, or told me that something was going on, give me useful information now connecting to the cab network or whatever it is, uh, rather than just showing me this fancy animation that just throws my eyes all over the screen and I don't know what's going on. I'm just confused. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a- animations are huge. A lot of it is people deviate from the standard for not a really good reason. Uh, you know, the the OS itself has a language. It has a, a a style, you know, and you may or may not agree with iOS 9, 10, whatever version we're on and the look and feel of it, but that's the platform you're on. If I were designing for Android, I wouldn't try to make an app that looked like iOS. I would try to make an app that looked like it belonged on Android. Uh, and the easiest way to do that is to use the defaults. Uh, it's amazing. How, it's very tempting. You want to give your app its own personality and its own look and feel. But if you go too far with that, you're, you're giving yourself a lot of extra work for no real benefit. You're just confusing the user. Uh, so you know, sticking to the standards is both more time efficient from a building the thing standpoint. Uh, and it's also, uh, you know, it's going to actually provide a better experience for the user because it's going to be more familiar to them. Uh, you know, it's, it's never about impressing people. It's always about making them happy. And making them happy is, you know, it, the easiest way to do that is to, is to make something that's familiar. Joe, I love your second point about using the defaults. Sometimes I'll have a project with a client who doesn't realize how much they really should be budgeting for 
a designer in addition to me as a developer. And I'll say to them, well, you know, it might make a lot of sense to just use a lot of iOS's built-in uh, default controls and look and feel. So you're saying that's actually okay uh, sometimes when you don't have the budget for a great designer. Yeah, or even if you do, I mean, I think the defaults, you know, they're they're made by professional develop designers at Apple, you know, right, and who are better than most designers out there at the field. Uh, they know the platform uh, better than you do, better than your designer does, probably. Uh, and yeah, there's a there's a cause and a reason. Yeah, you you do want your app to have some kind of personality. You want it to stand out in its own way. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but at the same time, you don't want to fight the defaults anyway. So, yeah, if you're in a situation where you really are in, you know, in, where you really are just better off using the defaults, you shouldn't be afraid of that. Uh, and obviously, you're going to do some things in there to kind of give it a little bit of style, but don't be tempted by that. Uh, you know, it's 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 a it's an easy way to go overboard, and it's an easy way to look out of place in the OS. So, Joe, tell us some more stories, uh, things outside of Bombing Brain Interactive, consulting projects you've come on as, as a design consultant that have maybe been uh, difficult. Maybe they've been more trouble than, than they really were worth to you. You don't need to name any names, of course, and we don't expect <laughs> you to. But maybe just tell us about what went wrong and some pitfalls that other people bringing design consultants on or design consultants themselves can avoid. Yeah, let me um, let me start off by saying that uh, I love all my clients, and uh, I would never badmouth any of them. <laughs> but uh, you know, sometimes you know a relationship doesn't work out for whatever reason, and as often as not, it's my own fault. Uh, you know, as it may be something that just broke down in the communication with the client, and I wasn't clear enough upfront about what I needed uh, from them. Uh, you know, sometimes you're dealing with people who aren't used to working with others. They are, you know, especially uh, a lot of the indie developers that I've worked with, it's their first time hiring somebody. Uh, they've done everything else by themselves up until that point. And it's really, really hard to let go of that control, right? It's, it's hard to, uh, to, to, to let someone else make a decision, right? Uh, and so in a lot of cases, you know, people, I've done it myself when I've hired other people. I forget that I hired them because they're better than me at this. Uh, or because I don't really, I shouldn't really be spending my time on this. I should be over here working on this other thing. Uh, and so I think, you know, giving in that control is a common thing that happens a lot. Uh, you know, it becomes a, tr a trouble spot, uh, particularly for people in very small groups or who are used to going, going at it alone. Uh, and the other big one that I, I've run into quite a bit uh, is, is communication breakdown. And that happens because people are, are conflict averse. You know, I don't like getting in people's faces. Uh, I don't like to tell people uh, that I have a problem. But, you know, I found over the years that the longer I wait and the quieter that I am and the more that I let myself stew over something that it's probably just a misunderstanding, uh, you know, the worse off I'm going to be. And so, you know, but my advice to people when you're working with, uh, with others is, is to just be honest and, uh, you know, and give that feedback when you need it to be able to say, you know, this isn't working. I, I need I need to know this or that or, you know, it's it's really tricky sometimes with that. Uh, another big one I find uh, that a lot of people have issues with and uh, it's, you know, you get a message and you immediately respond to it when you're in an emotional state. And that usually leads to bad things. I, I don't know if, if others um, have found this to be a problem for me, you know, when they're when I'm, they're working for me. But uh, a lot of times I'll get a message and I know that if I write back to them right now, I'm going to end up saying something snarky or something that I'm, I'm going to regret saying immediately, right? Because for whatever reason, I'm working on one thing and this was a distraction or, um, you know, it just rubs me the wrong way because that person's communication style is different from mine. What I found is that I, it's best for me to kind of walk away. When I get that email, just kind of let it sit, 
uh, wait a half hour and then respond. Uh, you know, immediate response can sometimes be extremely dangerous. It can, you know, send tensions through the roof for no good reason. And sometimes it's better to just kind of back away and take all the emotion out of it because this is a business transaction. It shouldn't be about your personal feelings. It should be about what makes the product best. And that's really hard to remember, but it's, it's definitely a lesson you learn over time working with people. Uh, you know, other times, you know, it's a lot of it is, is time management as well. Uh, I certainly have been in, in, in situations where I've overbooked myself. I've gotten myself into situations where five, four or five different people are asking for things from me at once. Uh, and that gets tricky. You know, a project you thought was going to be ending this week doesn't end until the following week. And yet you've already promised somebody you're starting something at the same time. Uh, you know, making those kinds of things uh, and learning to prioritize those things and again, be upfront and honest and saying, you know what, I know I told you I'd have this by Tuesday, but it's going to be Thursday. Uh, those kinds of things are extremely important as well. And I've, I've found that I've gotten better at that over the years as well. Uh, one, one of the techniques I have for, for deadlines is I, I always try to be early no matter what. I, I'm pretty good at convincing myself that something that's due on Friday is actually due on Wednesday. Uh, in this way, if something happens and Wednesday didn't happen for whatever reason, I'll still get it done by Thursday or Friday, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but that, those, are, those are the kinds of lessons you learn over time after having disappointed a few people along the way. Has there ever been a situation where you as a design consultant coming onto a project have just had a disagreement about aesthetic with the client? So something where it was really a matter of taste. Yeah, and those things I always defer to the person who owns the project, right? It's it's your money at that point. I can give you my advice or my professional opinion, but if it really is an aesthetic that you don't agree with, I'm not going to push you on that or fight you on it. Uh, you know, I've never gotten to a point where I it, it was such a disagreement, and the way they were making me do it was so bad that I would be I'd be ashamed to put my name on it. That kind of a thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I guess I've just always been good at finding clients who would never do that. Uh, but yeah, obviously there have been aesthetic choice. I usually offer options when someone says, eh, I don't really like this. I try to probe them and find out why they don't like it. What is it about it that's striking them personally? Uh, and uh, usually I'm pretty good about, again, taking away the, well, this is, it's not about what you like or what you don't like. It's about what's effective and what isn't effective, right? So if you say, here's my goal, I want my customers to do this when they get on this page, then the question isn't, well, do you like this? The question is, does this get you to that goal? You know, will this make customers, you know, is this going to confuse customers or are they going to be happy with it? Uh, and those kinds, I find when you phrase it, you know, the, one of the worst things you do as a designer is to just send somebody uh, a draft of something. Here's, here's the new, uh, you know, mock-ups for the, uh, the, the sign-in page, right, for instance. And you just say, uh, let me know if you like it. Uh, you know, that's the worst thing a designer could ever say. <laughs> uh, first off, don't ever just present something like that without you know, some kind of an explanation. Ideally, it'd be like, okay, I'd like to show you the mock-ups. Let's get on a call and talk about them. Or at the very least, you know, when I present the mock-ups, full paragraph explaining of why I made every choice that I made. Uh, you know, you have to sell that design to your client. It's not, you know, they're not going to understand it if you just hand them a bunch of pictures. Uh, and that, I, t I find, tends to lead to a lot of questions and nitpicking that isn't necessary. Whereas if you really defend yourself and present it in a way that explains why you've made the choices you've made, uh, I find that clients are much more ex uh, receptive to that. They're going to say, oh, okay, now I get why that. I wouldn't have understood that otherwise. And they, they buy into it because they feel your passion for it and they understand that you're not just making haphazard choices. This isn't orange because I liked orange or I was feeling orange today. <laughs> uh, you know, I made that color choice for a specific reason. What's been your favorite consulting project? And again, we don't need to name names if you wouldn't like to. 
Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. That's a really, that's a really tough one. Um, you know, I, I think the ones that I've liked the best, and there have been a, a few of these, uh, were ones where I really partnered with somebody uh, and I really felt like there was a mutual kind of understanding of, you know, we're working together on this. Uh, and it wasn't all about like, uh, you're a higher gun to do this one little job and that's it. There was, a, there was an understanding that, you know, I was playing a pivotal role uh, in, in making the product better in some way, shape or form. And those relationships, it wasn't that that person always said everything I did was great. Uh, you know, we may have had back and forth and, and real arguments over things, but at the end of the day, we got to a better finished product. Uh, the more involved I am in an app, the more happy I tend to be. I like larger projects. I like, uh, you know, I'm more than happy to do an icon or do, you know, just do a small little bit of graphics for a layout or things like that. But the, the projects I enjoy the most are sort of the long-term, uh, you know, deep involvement in the user experience kinds of discussions and, and even the business side of it. You know, I love talking about like, how do you plan on making money with this? Or, you know, what is, what is your plan for this once you've launched it and, and things like that? Uh, you know, when you're, when you're working with a client that really understands business, I think that's, that, that's really where uh, I, I end up with more success. How much does an understanding of culture go into being a design consultant? For example, you're a bassist in airplane mode, and you've also worked on the app Setlist at Bombing Brain Interactive. So you have an understanding of music, and you have an understanding of the needs of musicians. Um, how important is that as a design consultant? And does it also go across national or um, cultural boundaries? So would an app targeted for the Chinese market have trouble with an American designer? Well, I wouldn't say they would have trouble so much as it would put you at a disadvantage if you've never studied that culture or you don't really know much about what apps, uh, you know, are like in that culture. You know, what software should be designed like. So, these are all things you can overcome, but you have to have enough passion and enough uh, interest in learning uh, to to overcome those those disadvantages. Uh, and you know, so I don't think you can be, you can be an expert in everything that you're going to work on, but at the same time. Yeah, I like to think that after this many years with Bombing Brain that we have kind of developed this uh, understanding of what live presentation type apps are all about, right? Uh, we build apps for the stage and for the recording studio, uh, you know, whether it be our teleprompter or in, your, in this case with set lists. Uh, that's a live performance app. It needs to not crash and it needs to, you know, it needs to work in lighting conditions and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely... You know, I've definitely gained experience, you know, and, and even for the band itself, I've built this uh, app, Clickerous, uh, you know, our, our metronome app. And, you know, it was the same thing. It was, it was really taking into account all the things that I've learned over the years about what looks right on stage uh, and under certain conditions and what works when, you're, when you've got an instrument in your hands and you're trying to press buttons, uh, you know, making them nice and large and, and things of that nature. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think it's inevitable that you're going to specialize in certain things over time. Uh, but I think that a good designer who's curious, uh, who wants to work uh, and wants to learn uh, is is going to be able to overcome those things if if they really want to get involved. But you know, yes, if I'm a if I'm a client and I've got a, a choice between someone who's worked a thousand times in this particular field and one who hasn't, that's going to weigh strongly for me. Sure. We've briefly talked about designers who are learning to code. What about developers, such as some of our listeners who are iOS contract developers that want to learn more about design? What resources would you point them to? Uh, that's great. There, there are lots of resources out there for learning uh, apps like Photoshop and, and things of that nature. Uh, you know, there are things like lynda.com and uh, lots of other kinds of uh, tutorial services that are really great. There's lots of, also a lot of great free videos out there. Uh, there are courses, there are classes you can take. Uh, you know, one designer that I would absolutely recommend reading uh, is Mark Edwards uh, from Django. 
uh, he uh, he posts constantly like articles about his workflow, and he shows you here's how I do you know, here's how I, here's how I work in Illustrator when I make the, when I make icons, and this is why I use this app, and here's how I use this app. Uh, there aren't that many dev- designers out there sharing their step-by-step, uh, but the ones that do, uh, I find their their tutorials invaluable uh, because you really get a lot of insight into their thinking and how they go about it. Um, resources like Dribbble, I, unfortunately, I don't find all that useful. They're fine for inspiration. They're fine to search for things that you, like aesthetically please you or you say, wow, that's interesting. I hadn't looked at it that way before. But uh, unfortunately, the interaction isn't there. It's more of a showcase piece and less of a t- tutorial like, here's how I built this. It's not like a Stack Overflow. I really wish that designers had a Stack Overflow equivalent where you could just ask questions and you would just get answers to pretty much anything. When I was learning development, Stack Overflow was absolutely essential. Uh, it, was, it was so incredible uh, to have that resource. Uh, I don't really find that there's anything equivalent in the design world, unfortunately. I wish there were. Okay. Um, who are some designers that inspire you? Uh, well, the one I mentioned before, uh, Mark Edwards, is obviously a, a big one, a huge influence on me. I really like his work. Uh, I really uh, I like uh, Gideon Mayhew from from the Icon Factory. He's done a lot of amazing work, and even his artwork beyond what he's done in apps is really beautiful. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know Louis Mantia and, and people of that nature. All the people who worked at Apple. Uh, you know, even on the ori- uh, especially on the original iPhone team, people like Lauren Brichter uh, is an amazing coder, but he's also uh, you know has a great eye for design. Uh, so yeah, there are a lot of people out there making great stuff, uh, and you know you just gotta go out there and look for it. <laughs> um, I, you know, all, you know, there's, there's, it, this is a, a field with with a long history, and so uh, you know, in the graphic design field, but also in in apps now, we're, we've been going at this long enough now, where there's there's a lot of people uh, that you can you can uh, learn and, and be inspired by out there. There's been a lot of changes to the look and feel of the base iOS operating system over the years. The biggest, of course, was iOS 7, and we're seeing some some more changes with iOS 10. How has it been for you as a designer um, keeping up with these changes? So has it been a challenge, and have you generally agreed with the direction that Apple's been going in? Yeah, iOS 7 was obviously the big one. That was huge, a uh, big challenge uh, because it was a big fundamental shift. But it, I'm really happy that it happened. Um, I do think, as a lot of people have suggested, it was a bit of an overcorrection. Uh, but I could see now pretty easily that where Apple wanted to take the iPhone and where they were moving it from an internal standpoint with the chips and uh, animations and such, none of that, none of the really smooth kind of cool animated stuff that's going on in iOS would be possible with all of those flat bitmap graphics that we were dealing with, with all these shadows and such. Uh, and so it was kind of a necessary shift. And I do think now that we're getting into eight, nine, and iOS ten now, we're, you know, we're seeing it kind of pull back a little bit, and we're getting away from that purely, uh, completely minimalistic design, and it's getting a little more personality back, which I like. Uh, but you know the the big shift at seven was obviously the biggest challenge. But every year, whenever Apple brings out a new operating system, there's some kind of challenge. You know, uh, I we focus on iPad quite a bit. Uh, the Bobby Brain apps, even my own apps that I've built, uh, you know, have all been pretty iPad centric. And so last year, when the iPad split screen stuff happened, that was a big deal too. I mean, it's harder than it looks to get your app to perform exactly the way it should in every different uh, screen size and on every different, uh, you know, side panel and uh, that's available now. Uh, so that gets to be more challenging all the time. Obviously, you know, new devices now. There's rumors of a 10.5 inch iPad, something between the two current iPads, <laughs> big ones. Um, you know, like if that changes uh, aspect ratio or something like that, that's going to have a huge impact. 
Uh, obviously, things like auto layouts and things like the universal storyboards have made that a little easier, but you can't just assume that you know everything is going to fall into place every time. Uh, there, there are always questions. Uh, even if the app does one thing, you have to ask yourself, well, should it be doing that? Or could we be fitting more things on this 12.9-inch screen? That's always going to be the designer's challenge. Um, and if you're a good app developer, you're thinking about that and you're asking yourself, well, what can I do? What can I add to this extra real estate that I have? Or is this really the optimal layout for this particular phone size and so on and so forth? So you know, even beyond just size classes and things, you really have to think about where it's going and where it's moving. And now that we have new animation capabilities uh, in iOS 10, uh, makes animating much easier, makes animating and stopping things mid-animation much easier. Uh, I, those things are fun and they're, they're interesting to learn. And those are definitely the areas of code that I would as a designer, be interested, especially in checking out and saying, well, how easy is that? How much harder is that? You know, what is possible? What's not possible? Whenever you see these API changes for your developer, it really comes in handy to then go to, uh, you know, learn what you can about, you know, what those changes mean uh, in terms of what you can design that a, de- that a developer can now do much more easily than they could a year ago. Let's talk a little bit about tools of the trade, and I'm particularly interested in tools of the pay- trade Excuse me, for collaboration between you and a developer, you and a client. What kind of tools do you use to show your ideas, to uh, communicate the direction you want to go with, to make prototypes, and what are some that have been the most effective for you that you think others might not know about? Yeah, I think designers need to get familiar with Git. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's inevitable. Uh, it sucks. There are parts of the, the whole thing that I don't want to have anything to do with, you know, once they say, oh, open the terminal and do this. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> you know, uh, but it is necessary. I think that's, that's how, uh, you know, developers think in terms of their file systems, uh, you know, whatever, whatever their system is. I know some people are still using Mercurial and, and Subversion and other things like that, but whatever it is that your, your developers are using, you kind of have to move to them a little bit because all of those versioning systems and those uh, quality control is- things, uh, they're extremely important when you're developing in teams. And uh, we don't really have anything equivalent to that in the design world. I, I know a few people have tried to build sort of the equivalent of, of, a, of a, you know, a file versioning system for Photoshop and things. Um, but nothing has really took off, but, but that's definitely something that you should learn how to use and, and use as a way of communicating and downloading latest files and uploading files. Uh, your developers should not have to be worrying about putting files into folders. You should be able to upload those yourselves and make those changes. Um, you know, a, a huge tool for communication that we've been using a lot, uh, is obviously Slack. I mean, it's obvious. I, I wish I didn't have 18 different Slacks, but you know, that's just the way it is. The more clients that I work with, the more I end up in yet another Slack. Um, but you know what? It, it works. It's a, it's a good tool, at least for the communication. My email has gone down to almost nothing, my business email, uh, thanks to Slack. And it's so much easier to compartmentalize the communication between different small groups when you're working with several different groups uh, to be able to see all that conversation in one place. And even the files that you're sharing are all going to be there and archived in one place. Uh, that really comes in handy. Uh, Dropbox, I absolutely couldn't do my job without. Uh, Dropbox is huge for me because I work, uh, you know, on a laptop when I'm traveling around or when I'm working, uh, you know, in a coffee shop or somewhere to get away from this dungeon of an office of mine. Uh, and I have my iMac at home, so I have two separate computers. And keeping them in sync is, I don't even want, I don't want to ever have to think about is this file on that machine or is this file on that machine? Carrying around external drives, everything like that. I I think about what it used to be like in 1996 when I had two different computers, how difficult that was. Uh, But to do that all now with Dropbox and also to share files, obviously, between people, uh, Dropbox becomes extremely uh, useful for that. And it's pretty cheap to to have, you know, a terabyte of space to play with or more. Uh, So, 
it's it's really really interesting how how these tools have developed over time. Uh, as far as making mockups go and things like that, I still use a Photoshop for a lot of that. I use Illustrator. Uh, I have definitely um, you know toyed around with a lot of the other uh, tools. Sketch is a really great tool, although I haven't used it as much. Uh, and uh, you know some of the things like Omni Graffle come in pretty handy. The, but the Omni Group app that I usually use more often is is Omni uh, Outliner. Uh, I always write my talks, and you know whenever I'm writing out anything that should be outlined, like blog posts and other things like that. Uh, I tend to use Omni Outliner for that. And I do also organize my tasks uh, personally in, in Omni Focus. Uh, when it comes to the, the group, uh, lots of kind of group task management uh, lately has been falling into Trello. And Trello is actually a pretty cool tool uh, for just you know, non-time-based things, like sort of like saying, here's a list of our bugs that have been reported, or Here, here's a list of to-do items. Uh, and one person grabs it and, and works on it, that kind of thing. So I've, I've used that quite a bit as well. So you're based in New York. How important has it been for you to meet clients locally or are most of your clients remote? And is it ever important to collaborate in person on design? Uh, yeah, I, I'd say both. I mean, a lot of my clients have been remote because I go to a lot of conferences and I meet a lot of people. Uh, but the New York community here, there's no question that, that has gotten me, uh, you know, it's gotten me work and it's gotten me, you know, lots of face and face to face time with some of the smartest people in the industry. It's, it's just great. Uh, to be able to go to meetups and and talk with people and become friends with them, the more you can be personally connected to people, and that's you know that needs to be physical. Uh, I'm an introverted person. I don't like to be out you know, amongst people too often because I get really tired really fast. Uh, but it it is important to do that. I think per person to person is really important. Uh, in as far as like working together in person, I don't get a chance to do that very often. But when I do, it is actually nice and it's pleasant. I wouldn't say it's required almost ever, but it's certainly helpful. If and it's something that you can do, you're working with a local client, I do find that it can be beneficial at times to at least meet up and work. Uh, and the Bombing Rain guys even, like we like to work in the same room together sometimes. You know, We don't get to do it often enough. They're out in Philly and I'm in New York, but whenever we can, we like to all just be in the room and I can be working on my thing and they're both each working on a separate thing. But just being able to look over your shoulder and say, hey, why don't you take a look at this real quick. I, I'm trying this mock-up. Uh, and have them look at it immediately and have me be able to explain to them what my thinking, uh, that can really help. And, and sometimes it's just it's inspiring to be sitting next to people who are working you know, on, on the same project, even if you're working on different tasks. Let's shift the discussion a little bit to talk about release notes. How did the podcast start and why has it been so successful? Uh, yeah, speaking of conferences, uh, when <laughs> I, I was going to uh, 360 iDev, you know, this is like my second or third year that I went and I was speaking, uh, and I met Charles there. It was one of those things where the year before, the other two guys had gone and they met Charles. Uh, and then the following year, I went and I think only Tim came. I don't think uh, Gene came. And so Charles is one of those guys. He's not an introvert. He's very extroverted. And so he's one of those guys that like makes sure that everyone has dinner plans. <laughs> so like... He went and he remembered Tim from the year before and he was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting some people together for dinner. You you, you should come. And, and uh, Tim was like, well, can I bring Joe, my, my designer? And he said, sure. Uh, and it was one of those things. So I went to this dinner with like 15 people and we had a great time. We had a good conversation. We were just chatting about this and that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I left it not thinking anything about it. But I think it was a couple of weeks or a couple of months later uh, Charles just kind of emailed me and he said, Hey, you know what? Uh, you know, I'm thinking, have you ever thought about starting a podcast? And I thought, no, I don't know. I, I kind of have, but I didn't think I would, you know, who would want to listen to me. Uh, and we got to talking back and forth about it. And we've, we, you know, we decided that we wouldn't do it unless we had something different to add. Uh, 
uh, some new twists to the whole idea. We didn't want to just be another two guys talking about whatever happened in Apple this week. Right. And uh, so we landed on this business angle that we both really liked business and we both liked uh, the whole idea of independent business and how it was getting tougher and uh, you know how most of us were resisting learning the basic fundamentals of business. Uh, and so we started it and thought, well, you know, maybe we'll get like 30 episodes in and we'll run out of topics. You know, we, we started with the basics, you know, oh, let's talk about taxes and then let's let's talk about marketing and let's talk about, you know, all the different things uh, involved in a business. And we never thought in a million years that we'd have 170 or 180 some odd episodes, you know, three years later. Wow. Uh, but, but we just kept coming up with new ideas and Apple kept throwing new curveballs into the situation and the the ecosystem kept evolving and we kept learning more. Uh, and we've had great guests on and everything, and it just became one of those things that kind of spiraled. And and um, I'm really glad I started it because it, it's really solidified my thoughts. I've learned a ton, uh, and it's also kept me on my toes about you know staying committed to the idea of of you know learning to do all aspects of this, not just being a designer in my room and never thinking about where the money comes from or how how apps get sold and so on and so forth. Uh, I think it's made me a much more well-rounded person. And because I partner with a person like Charles, you know, the two of us are pretty much sticklers about sticking to stuff. So, you know, we've been very good about uh, producing an episode every single week. Uh, and, you know, we find the time somewhere or another and we make it work. And it's, it's been really great. I've, I'm really, really, really happy that we, we kept it going all this time. Now, release notes is about the business of the app store. If you weren't an expert on that when you started the podcast, now so many episodes later, I'm sure you are. Do clients ever come to you for business advice? Uh, I, 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 I will start by saying a caveat. I don't think I'm an expert, but uh, I think maybe okay. that's the, the first step of, 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 of becoming an expert, I guess, is, is admitting what you don't know. And I still feel like there's a lot to learn. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I do think that I've gained a lot of uh, reputation over, over the, the course of those years. And I do now have people... I can use that as a selling point when I'm talking to clients. Uh, you know, one of the things that I like to tell people is that it's like I, I can help you with decisions much beyond just you know color choices or uh, you know making you a pretty icon. I can really help you with the user flow and and feedback you know coming through in and out of your app and in the experience and uh, you know those knowing what works and what doesn't work. Uh, you know, sometimes just having a, a conversation, those kinds of consulting calls where I can say, look, I can just give you advice as to whether or not this is a good app idea, whether or not I think that this could be successful. Uh, people find that very valuable and uh, they're more than happy to, to sit down with me and, and have those chats. And that's really, really great because uh, I love having those discussions anyway. So to be able to do it and to be hired to do it is even better. Tell us about the Release Notes conference. How did that come about? And again, why has it been so successful? Uh, you know, a couple of years into doing the podcast, uh, Charles approached me. Uh, it was actually maybe only about a year in uh, because it took us a whole year to really plan it, uh, the first one last year. And uh, so he came to me and he said, what do you think about doing a conference? You know, we both love conferences. I go to like six or seven a year at least. Uh, and it's probably way more than is recommended. <laughs> but I like doing it so much and I like different conferences. And the two of us were sort of becoming conference connoisseurs. We kind of knew what we liked, what we didn't like. And we thought, you know... The whole reason why we wanted to start the podcast is because I, I was blogging about business and stuff like that, but I didn't think I knew everything, right? So if I talk to this other guy, maybe he can teach me some things. Well, then we started bringing guests on the podcast. It was like, we'll get people who are smarter than us to come on and they'll enlighten us even more. Uh, and the idea behind the conference was to say, well, wow, this is great. What if we got a whole room full of people who are you know, successful and different levels of success at this? And we got some speakers, all people who were experienced at you know, some form of business and entrepreneurial uh, spirit. Uh, and we spent three days together actually chatting about this nonstop. And 
it really, really was a great idea. And no one was doing it in the iOS community. Most conferences are about business. If you think about most industries, um, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of salesmen conferences and you know, things for marketers. Uh, and so development conferences tend to be, you know, much mostly about writing code and technical stuff. And that's great if that's what you're into. And a lot of people love those conferences. But again, like the podcast, we wanted to do something different. And we thought, well, no one was really, you could go to like a 360 idea. Some of the other conferences have some business talks and that's great. But we wanted to want to do something that was 100% focused on just that. And we, what we found was the people who came last year to the conference were, they weren't just people who were hoping to become good at being indies. They were people who were already successful. By and large, a lot of the people in that room were making more money with their apps than most of the people you hear about every day, the internet famous people. Uh, you know, they were making decent money. They're just quiet. Uh, and they came to the conference because they wanted to learn how to be even better. Uh, and that was really cool because that meant that it wasn't just the 10 or so speakers that we've got on stage that are offering this valuable advice. It's not a one-way conversation. All those people in the room became a valuable resource as well. So if you showed up to this conference, the more people you talked to, the more likely you were going to be able to avoid mistakes or you were going to be able to come up with new ideas. You know, the, the, what I like to tell people is, you know, bring your betas, you know, bring, bring your, your app ideas, bring everything that you're working on to show off because these are the smartest people <laughs> around at making businesses successful. And they'll be able to tell you right away whether an app idea is going to fly or whether or not the way you've got your sign-in flow or whatever is, is not really going to work or, uh, you know, whether your monetization strategy is really smart for this kind of app and, and how, you, you know, what marketing techniques have worked and what haven't worked, what you've tried, what doesn't work. Uh, and so on and so forth. So it, it's, it becomes, I think, what makes it attractive to people is, is that notion that you're going to come uh, walk away from this thing with a lot more knowledge about business than you ever could get, even from listening to two of us every week, uh, you know, certainly. But also, you know, from any other conference where it's mostly about the technical stuff. We spoke earlier about the biggest mistakes that people make in terms of iOS design. What are some of the biggest mistakes that people make in terms of the App Store? I think forgetting that you have you have to get customers, uh, forgetting that the app store is not uh, it's 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 just a distribution channel uh, that your your app is going to be there in the store, but it's going to be invisible. So you need to find a way to get it to people. Uh, people forget that Airbnb at one time had no customers. Uh, you know, Dropbox had zero customers. Instagram had zero customers, and the founders of those companies went door to door and they started with their friends. And when they ran out of friends, they started cold emailing and cold calling people. And then they started telling everyone they, who walked into a coffee shop that they happened to be in about their products. And one by one, they've got enough people until they hit critical mass. And that hard work, that bit where you have to find that audience is you know, much more critical to your success than whether or not uh, that animation is so perfect. Uh, and so while I don't subscribe to the whole just build it and don't worry if it's broken, we'll fix it later kind of Facebook philosophy the way they started out, I don't recommend that for everyone. But at the same time, like, I, you know, I do believe in crafting a fine product, but at the same time, it, it's not the only thing. You're going to build that thing and no one's going to see it. And it, it really bugs me that, you know, I, I don't get mad at the app store when that happens. It bugs me that these these apps are being built and no one's giving a second thought as to how to make them successful or whether or not they should even be built in the first place. You know, a lot of times one or two conversations with the right person would stop you from six months of building an app that no one's ever going to want <laughs> or that you're really not going to be able to find uh, the right audience for or that you're selling for 99 cents when it should be $50. 
you know, all those questions are really hard to answer and you need to be talking to people. You need to be researching and you need to be learning as much as you can about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, and the only way you're going to do that is by interacting with other people. You've spoken quite extensively on the Release Notes podcast about the changes Apple has recently made to the App Store, some improvements, uh, some new leadership. How do you feel about the general direction and how things are, are changing at Apple in terms of their stewardship of the App Store? I'm always optimistic. Uh, I know that Apple's priority is always going to be towards you know the big names where they can make the most money and have the most impact. I mean, most people want brand name things. When they go to their Apple TVs, they want to watch HBO. You know, they're not interested in my game per se or you know, my little timer app that I built for the Apple TV. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I am hopeful that there's still room for indies to kind of poke through that all that noise. Uh, and I am hopeful that Apple is listening to developers. I do think that having you know single day turnarounds for uh, for for reviews that was a simple change that made a huge difference. It made a big impact. Uh, and the more that that leadership change uh, you know demonstrates that kind of goodwill towards developers, the better off we're going to be. Uh, you know, it, it, everything that Apple does is never going to make me happy. And, and I know they need to focus on what makes them profit, right? But at the same time, uh, it doesn't have to be a, a, a sort of a, uh, a one or the other kind of situation. You can make HBO happy and also make, you know, Joe, the developer, happy. Uh, and so I, I hope that uh, there's more to come from that. I do feel like it's been a positive movement in the last year or two. I mean, the market is the market, right? People complain. They say that you can't make it as an indie anymore. It's like, no, you can't just coast as an indie anymore. You can't throw an app on the store and just let it be discovered automatically. Yeah, that those days are gone if they ever existed. But, you know, there, there is still opportunity there for someone who's willing to hustle, who's learning, willing to make a good product that is needed, that provides value to people. Uh, and, you know, as long as Apple doesn't get in the way of that, which they have done you know, here and there in the past by blocking apps for kind of seemingly unknown reasons, uh, the more that they give us that flexibility, I think the more we're going to be happy. And I, I do think that over the years, the, the change has been moving in the right direction. It just is never fast enough. I will say the only place I think that those days are not over might be on the Apple TV. I don't know if you've seen this with your timer app, but I have a chess app on the Apple TV, and because it was just there at the beginning, um, it did quite well. There was another little gold rush, I guess. Um, yeah. but, but I want to ask you, aside from the Apple community, are you involved in other design communities, or do you kind of specialize um, in the Apple community? So do you take on clients, for example, that might have an Android app out? I've never designed anything for Android. I would be more than happy to do that. I would have to do my work. I would have to do my homework to be ready for that. I do. I have taken a look at a lot of Android stuff, and I've been to conferences, particularly in Europe. A lot of conferences aren't iOS specific or platform specific. They're more like mobile dev. Uh, and in those cases, when I go to those conferences, I tend to go to the design talks for Android just so I can learn something new. Uh, so I do keep myself, uh, you know, up on that stuff, but I don't know nearly the, with the same level of expertise, you know, how to build apps on those platforms, and I'd want to familiarize myself. Uh, I do do a, quite a bit of web design. I've worked quite a bit on websites and and CMS and, thing, and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, I've always done that. I was really my, my entry level into design was always web type work, and so I've done quite a bit of that. But beyond that, it's always been pretty iOS and Mac centric. Uh, I also like designing on the Mac. It's a different kind of challenge altogether. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to stay in the Apple ecosystems more often than not, but not necessarily because I'm, I'm you know, opposed to moving branching out. It's just where my connections tend to be. 
So is there anything that we didn't cover that we should have covered? Any questions I should have asked you? And is there anything you want to plug? Uh, no, I, I would just say, you know, uh, if you're interested in business at all and you'd like to come to our conference, I would definitely say do that. You know, time is running out for that. It's going to be in late September. So, uh, you know, that, that conference is coming up quickly and you need to book your hotel room and everything else. And, uh, you know, if you want to check out the podcast, if you're interested in learning about business, you know, feel free to do that. And, uh, you know, uh, if you, if you want to contact me, feel free. If you got a design project, even if you just want to ask a question, you know, I'm not uh, one of these people that's going to charge you hundreds of dollars just to answer a simple question. If you have something about design or you're not quite sure about something, you want to have a quick conversation. Uh, I'm always open to that. And, and if you ever see me at a conference or something like that, and you want to talk to me, please do. I'm pretty shy. I'm, pre- I'm not really great at talking to new people, but if you uh, introduce yourself. I'll, I'm, I promise I will try to be pleasant. Uh, <laughs> I try my best uh, to always be in a good mood when I'm around people at conferences. You say you're an introvert, but actually, I think I saw you at the Apple TV Tech Talk uh, in New York City, mm-hmm. and um, you were just surrounded by people. I mean, I, I was <laughs> I was talking to somebody else. I didn't come up, but. Um, I, I, you seem like quite an extrovert to me. Yeah, it's it's a it's a secret. It's a trick I have. Uh, what I do is I go to so many conferences that if <laughs> the more the more that you go to, then you actually tend to know a few people, and then it becomes that much easier uh, to say hello. Uh, but yeah, and then the other thing is like do podcasts and other things like this, and then people start finding you, and that, that really helps. Well, I'll put links in the show notes. But how can people find out more about the Release Notes podcast, the conference, and also how can people get in touch with you? Sure. If uh, it, Release Notes is just at releasenotes.tv. Uh, you can find out everything about the uh, podcast as well as the conference there. You can also subscribe to it in you know wherever whatever your podcatcher of choice is, uh, just by putting in releasenotes.tv. Uh, and uh, of course, the conference is is there as well. If you want to get tickets, that's all available up there. And if you want to find me on Twitter, it's Jay Chaplinsky, which is kind of hard to spell, so I'll spell it for you. It's J C I E P L I N S K I. Uh, and my email address, my personal email is just joec at mac.com. That's always easy to get me uh, that way. Or, you know, it's usually Joe at whatever other thing I'm doing, like Joe at releasenotes.tv or Joe at Breakpoint Studio or Joe at, at bombingbrain.com. Uh, any of those will usually get to me. So uh, it's, I'm pretty easy to find that way. Well, Joe, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for being our first designer on the show. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Of course. Thank you very much. It was, it was a pleasure for me, too. Thanks. So that's our show for this month. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Joe as much as I did. I thought it was just such a fantastic and fun interview. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show. Remember to recommend us on Overcast, on Pocket Cast, whatever your podcast client of choice is. It really does help. And if you have feedback, good or bad, I always love to get it. Reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I hope you have a great month and we'll see you again in September.